You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On today's episode, we have Ben Bartlett, who is a Berkeley City Council member, appointed member of the California Blockchain Working Group, and internationally recognized policy leader. Ben is the architect of the Berkeley tokenized debt offering, a first-of-its-kind effort to create blockchain-based municipal bonds. Ben is also a partner at the San Francisco offices of Tackett Bartlett P. On this week's episode, we talk about how can blockchain solve wealth inequality? What are microbonds? What are smart contracts and how will they impact people? What is the California Blockchain Working Group and what is it currently working on? Are ICO initial coin offerings dead? And what is the future of Bitcoin? Also want to announce that we are raffling off a 30-minute coaching session with Ben for anyone that writes a review for this episode. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Ben, thank you for taking the time today to be on Silicon Valley. Well, thank you, Sean. Great to be here. Good to see you. Now, Ben, can you give us a little bit of background on what your career has been up to this point? Well, <laughs> uh, well, my career has had, has had a, a quite a long series of twists and turns that have led to uh, this interesting position I'm in now with you here. So my first job out of college, I worked in an investment bank. Uh, and at the bank, I worked on sort of investigating IP scenarios for around um, different printing technologies and essentially uh, help, help my bosses um, acquire printing companies and then make them use different inks. And it was, it was really interesting. But in so doing, I learned a lot about these entrepreneurs that started these companies. And then myself, my friends and I started a company, we, uh, a handbag with lights in it, called it Loose. And it was really amazing. We had it built in Italy and the parts manufactured in China, the internal parts. There was like, it was a beautiful purse that when you open it up, these amazing lights would emerge. Like imagine a really heavenly refrigerator. Uh, as a purse. It was really beautiful. And we had some traction on that. But alas, we couldn't really support the, the manufacturing cost. And then from there, I started dating a woman and she was into theater. And so I ended up uh, going to a lot of her uh, 24-hour theater sessions with her and ended up writing some plays. And, and then um, somehow getting talked into going and learning theater at Carnegie Hall. <laughs> so, I'm, so I'm working the bank by day doing my purse business on, the, on days as well, and at night at Carnegie Hall studying theater and acting and writing and producing and directing. And I did this for a while, and eventually I, I let go of everything else and was all in theater in New York. And it was great. Package plays, write, produce, direct. So I picked up all these skills around just coming up with a concept and constructing it for use, for maximum enjoyment of other people, like a customer and then packaging it and selling tickets and, and having the reward from creating some value in someone's life by what you've created. Then from there, I got called out to Los Angeles to go work in Hollywood. So I went there and ended up working in movies and TV shows and commercials, producing. And you know, at one point, I was a producer on Survivor, An Amazing Race, Hell's Kitchen, and American Gladiator. Those were amazing times. Really, really neat. And that was kind of the culmination of all my work, just creating from scratch a character. Those people in the shows are characters and, and then a concept around the character, then the show and, 
getting the advertising and negotiating with the labor unions and getting it out on TV. And so that was really cool. Around that time, Barack Obama, he was running for president. It's first time. Some friends of mine were connected to the campaign and they said, yeah, hey, come, come on, come help, man. Come help this first, help, help this first, black, this first black man run for president. I said, okay, I got to do what you got to do. <laughs> I, I took off, went to Minnesota, and I was there for six months doing town hall meeting and, and organizing it, writing persuasion scripts and things like that, really, really working hard to, to help them win Minnesota with a bunch of other organizers. It was really neat, lived with the family. And a moment on, during that experience is what pivoted my career, my life. A bunch of us were at a, at a wind turbine factory in the neighboring state. The president, Barack Obama, before he wasn't president then, <laughs> the senator came to town, the candidate. He was talking to the CEO of this company, and it was all wind energy, and this massive warehouse with turbines, like as long as like a football field it looked like. And Barack was like, all right, he goes, this is the future right here. This is the future. And he looked at me and everything, touched my shoulder, and I was like, okay, all right. So I was like, okay, um, this is the future. So renewable energy, what is this? I know it's cool. I know I like solar panels. I know I like electric cars. They don't exist yet, but I know I like them. It sounds like it could be awesome. And to tell you the truth, I was getting kind of stunted with my, my previous career. I was kind of creatively kind of running into a bit of a cul-de-sac. In my habit of saying yes to opportunity, just saying yes every single time, I said yes to renewable energy. So I went off, I sold my business in LA, and moved up to Berkeley, where my family's from originally, and ended up starting a coffee shop with my father right next to the, the city hall of Berkeley. We imported co coffee from Yemen. It was our own brand, Bartlett's Coffee, uh, organic coffee from Yemen. It was really a fun labor of love my father who passed away a couple of years ago and it was his dream so i said okay i'll sacrifice for a year or so and kind of re-engineer my life and help my father with his, with his dream and get to spend time with him because you know i've been living away from him most of my life and but the way we were set up we we're right next to city hall all the local politicians would come in and get coffee and i would talk to them all became friends with them all and the mayor etc and i said look i want to do this renewable energy stuff and Berkeley is sort of blessed with lots of commissions. There's a commission for every topic. There's one for transportation, one for healthcare, one for education, one for planning and zoning, one for homelessness, and there's one for the environment. And specifically, uh, actually two, <laughs> one for environment, one for zero waste. And so one of the politicians said, okay, well, I have an opening on the zero waste commission. Uh, you could learn about the, the environmental business there. I was like, okay, I don't know what that is, but I'll do it. So I got on the commission and it was, you know, recycling. And I learned that Berkeley was uh, the first town in the country to institute curbside recycling. And it was my neighborhood that was doing it first that I represent now, which is really cool. So I learned about recycling and, and learned about the intersection with recycling and energy. Because if you take garbage, and especially biodegradable garbage, and pack it in the earth, or pack it anywhere, it begins to, to break down and release gas, a methane gas. You can capture and power a city on. So uh, on my tenure there, and I was there for a few years, we created the first sort of garbage into energy deal for the city of Berkeley. It was a groundbreaking 
major deal. So I learned all about that, that world. And from then, someone told me to go to law school, do environmental law. So I did that and law school, studied environmental law and business and other stuff and ended up working on cap and trade. This was the carbon securities stuff in California when it came out. Worked on electric vehicle infrastructure. So learning how to set up the physical infrastructure and the financial infrastructure and funding for electric vehicle charging stations and networks of them and batteries and smart manufacturing. And then ended up getting into just deeper and deeper into that world and graduate law school and was working at the California Clean Energy Fund where we really went to bat on this stuff and dug deep and created loan loss reserve funds for people to buy electric cars and advanced battery manufacturing facilities around the country. And my original ideas of using creative business to make a difference and to expand opportunity. Now we're getting into innovation and environmental repair. And slowly this thesis started to kind of emerge. Hone in on innovation, let the innovation create opportunity, and make sure everyone's included in the opportunity. Innovation, opportunity, and inclusion. And that sort of emerged from that period of time. Then from there, that when you're trying to innovate, you run up against capital problems because institutions are not that into innovation because you, you can threaten their dominance, right? If you're a big company, the new guy comes up with a better widget, right? So that's when funding's the issue. So we spend so much time trying to move the economy into renewable energy and move transportation into electric vehicles, electric EV adoption. Well, since we can't fund these charging station networks that have to happen. We're talking millions of charging stations, right? Who's going to pay for that? We say, okay, well, maybe we can crowdfund them some way. Maybe there's a way to create micro-economies that can create wealth for people that use them. So a low-income person can be financially incentivized to engage with electric cars and electric charging and capture your electrons and move them around and sell them to each other, little marketplaces. And at that time, the crypto revolution was really, really taking off. It was starting to really, really get hot. ICOs and things like that. And so we designed a solar coin, a coin representing solar energy and renewable energy and capturing the electron and creating markets for that around it. And it was really neat, but it didn't go anywhere. We had no idea what we were doing. <laughs> we didn't know who to call. You know, We didn't know how to, how to stand it up, how to work it out. But we designed it and thought about it thought about it hard too. And then, um, and that sort of kind of became the genesis of the next iteration of innovative financing that I'm involved in now. You talked about ICO coin there and blockchain technology. Is the government still involved or interested in this type of technology? So yes, <laughs> in, in, a, in a nutshell, yes, the government is deeply involved. All governments are deeply involved deeply interested, deeply suspicious, deeply covetous of the technology because it's the new internet. And I guess the challenge is for governments to use it and leverage it for their benefit uh, without alienating their, their existing partnerships. And so you see that through the regulations happening everywhere. This is a huge topic. Basically, governments are faced with either kill the blockchain revolution or embrace it or somewhere in between. 
and that so to that end there's 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 probably a consensus that among governments around the world that they need to adopt it and they are doing so in a multitude of ways can you give an example of a government adopting this technology and before that even you give a brief definition or explanation of blockchain technology just a brief so so blockchain technology is <laughs> it's it's a, it's a database it's it's really simple it's a database and it holds information and information is written in a super code that's hard to break uh, and leaves a permanent record and the database and the record because it's so secure allows you to automate things on top of it the best way to imagine this is to for those people that, that have you ever used Google Drive, Google Doc, Google Docs, right? How you do, you write together, like you're here and I'm there and we're both typing together at the same time on the page. That's blockchain. You have $10, he's got $2, he's got $1. And the three of us are exchanging money. It's showing up at the same time on the screen. And then the next level, of course, is to set rules for where the money can go. And that becomes a, a programmable currency. The future and the, and the possibilities are endless once you have that. Essentially, it's just a distributed, distributed way to trade information and track things together. And then how are governments adopting this technology right now? There's a number of initiatives that are happening. Finance and infrastructure and healthcare and education, because you see the underlying technology of the crypto and the coin world, the blockchain ledger technology that we talked about uh, is useful for streamlining information sharing and tracking things. So Australia was a re really early adopter. They put much of their government on blockchain and, are, and or it's a, it's a pilot. They're, they're rolling the government into blockchain now. Um, Austria um, did, uh, did financing via blockchain offering. Uh, I believe that they were probably inspired by the work we did in Berkeley, which I guess we'll get into a little later. Um, <laughs> we're going to do it now. Why not? You know, the, um, you know the, the, my favorite use of government um, adoption of blockchain technology is one that we did and are in the middle of doing right now in Berkeley. We, going back to the issue of, of financing and getting financing together and getting around obstacles to financing, right, and finding new ways to fund things, we determined that you know our, our homeless population was was so great and growing, and it is growing now all over the place, every country and every every state as well, and California in particular. But the homelessness is growing, and there is very little public investment to create housing for people that just cannot afford to pay high rent. And so, to that end, people create affordable housing and homeless housing and housing for senior citizens, housing for Person with disabilities, but that that money is not big market return, so it's hard to get it funded. When to 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 do that, governments rely on a variety of mechanisms, either direct money from the government or tax credits, which is a corporation or a rich person can sort of lower their tax bill by investing in some of these good projects, like housing. We decided, we forecasted the market conditions based upon the tax cuts that were coming our way a couple of years ago, that rich people and corporations would have little incentive to, to invest their, their tax monies 
into projects because their tax bill will go down. There's no need to lower their tax bill, less need. So we decided to not wait for that train to come into the station, but to go ahead and change the course of the tracks. We decided to crowdfund the funding we would do to do this through a bond. And the bond would be meant to be accessible to the very people that would be living in these buildings. And the, the people who would soon be because they're not earning that much money. The average American is, is supposed to have a, a net worth of zero dollars the next three decades. We're on a collision course with ultra poverty and homeownership, which is the basis of wealth in America, is out of reach at this point for too many people because since the crash in 2008, the, the mortgages got absorbed and these large venture funds now own tens of thousands of houses and they don't, they don't sell them, they rent them and the population grows. People are just shut out of the economy. And you add to that the, the normal, the, just the fact that the capital velocity of the velocity of money since 2008 has slowed to a crawl. Velocity of money is the how, how many times a dollar is spent or whatever unit of currency is spent. And the more it's spent, the more, more hands it touches, the better your economy is, the more fair your economy is, the more shared prosperity you have. When the crash happened, when the government started issuing cheap money and inflating stocks and inflating you know, these large bundles of mortgages and whatnot, only the top people in the, in the economy get them. So it goes straight from government to a couple of hands, and there's no velocity. The ordinary folks are not enjoy, enjoying this money, and they're having to work two and three jobs, no benefits, you know, four hours, five hours, and automation's coming in the middle of that. So you have this, this real specter of, of, uh, of an intense social equation where you have massive have-nots and a few haves. So a lot of economists are thinking, how can we speed the velocity of money? How can we get money, money moving around? And so one way to do that is to look at the needs, right? And one need all governments have around the world right now is deep capital expenditure. Infrastructure in, the, in this world is woefully underfunded and has been decades, um, decades of underinvestment. So, that, so that's your sewers, that's your, bro, that's your roads, that's your bridges, that's your healthcare apparatuses. Then you have global, global sea level rise. So all the coastal cities need to be rebuilt and moved back. And you have pension obligations, none of which is met. So you have this, this crisis in funding that has to happen on a governmental level, whether for cities, counties, states, countries, you name them. And so you have these two twin goals, these two twin needs, people needing assets and capital assets needing funding. If you could solve for that kind of bilateral equation, could you know, drive the economy forward and, drive and open it up again. So we came up with this way to issue bonds to those people to fund those projects. And the issue, of course, right, you, know, you think, oh, of course, just do a bond, right? Well, yeah, of course. Uh, but, but bonds are, they are not meant for ordinary people. They are really expensive. They cost $5,000 in the bare minimum 
right? But more effectively, $100,000 or more. So ordinary folks trying to get an asset, can't buy a house, can't buy stocks, can't buy a bond, right? Let's give them a bond. And so with the technology, the blockchain technology, the we talked about here the, the ledger, right? The, the Google Docs kind of arrangement where much of the cost in bonds is baked in is people tracking who owns what and how it got issued. This is what they call the ledger, right? Which all money is. Money is just a ledger. You know, I bought this shirt from you. I have a record of it here, right? So the, this ledger is distributed and automated. It's streamlined. So you can automatically cut the cost of issuance by as much as half. And then also because it's so frictionless and so streamlined, it's just just a byte on a computer, you can issue the bond in a whole new way, in a much smaller way. It can go for $5. It can go for one cent because there's no, there's no expenditure in writing checks or keeping track. Da, da, da. It's super cheap to do. So that became the Community Microbond Initiative, that, that idea. And so we spent a year and a half crafting this uh, with industry and talking to people and learning about it and really coming up with a new form of financial inclusion. We drafted it, we passed it. It was a crazy year and a half to draft it and pass it. Uh, a lot of education. A lot of people thought it was Bitcoin or something and didn't understand that this is not Bitcoin. This is just the, the new internet at work. Like imagine emailing money. It's like that. And we passed it. And, and so I'm really excited. And the funny thing is, since we published that over a year ago, multiple countries and jurisdictions have, have issued bonds via blockchain. The World Bank, <laughs> you know, Austria, uh, there's more. So it's really cool that uh, we started this revolution that has just begun. How is California going to adopt this technology? Not just Berkeley, but how is it going to be spread out throughout the state? Well, I know that probably no less than 33 cities called me to watch this and see how we do it so they can copy it. Because the need, I told you, is so severe. Poor people, poor infrastructure. No money velocity. Multiple cities have been watching, and states, right? But now in California, we've kind of taken a, new, a big step, a big step forward. The legislature passed a measure creating blockchain task force, a working group blockchain working group to to study all the ways blockchain can be integrated into the California government and economy. And so um, I've been appointed by the governor to this task force, this working group, and with, with 19 other people, a lot of high-level operators in the space and high-level technologists and high-level thinkers, really smart and dynamic, and I'm really uh, <laughs> fortunate to spend time with these people. They are just incredible. And our job is to write the official report outlining the different ways blockchain could and should be, be integrated into California. And it's pretty crazy. So just a quick overview, the, the ways in which the technology can be implemented here are numerous. Whether it's streamlining healthcare process, processes for healthcare payments or keeping track of your medical records, when you go to the doctor, it's crazy, right? You're, <laughs> you know, they got to look you up. It's, it's a, they don't know what happened over here, over there, you know? So the, the, what they call portability is a game changer that the technology really enables. 
course, all the anything involving money and payments and proving and also identity identification, identity, receiving receiving um, payments from the state, tracking payments to vendors. There's there's cannabis from uh, the infrastructure, the the supply chain tracking of the cannabis, all the way from seeds cultivation to manufacturing to delivery to sale to retail. All that's mandated to be tracked, and it's hard to do it. It's really labor intensive, but this mechanism is really it makes it much easier. And tax payments, right? So just streamlining all these processes, it goes on and on and on. There's so many different uh, applications that people are exploring. What about smart contracts? Will that have an impact on the people? Smart contracts are essentially an automated transaction. You give it a set of rules, and it does it. Smart contracts will be the main game changer at play. So, for instance, if you you could go out and especially if you combine Internet of Things technology, sensors, and communication devices, you could go out and pre-negotiate a series of of deals and arrangements around a non-toxic form of some agricultural product. Let's say a shirt. Let's say you find cotton that does not use a lot of water and does not use, does not break humanitarian labor laws. And you find this cotton, okay. The challenge, of course, though, is to get this supply chain unlocked and get it out to market. Now, traditionally, you would have to go out and raise a bunch of money and buy it all up and have all the, the apparatus to move it to the store. And it would be more expensive because it's better and doesn't, you know, because it doesn't degrade um, the environment or humanity that much to be more expensive. But you can imagine where you could identify the cotton, negotiate the rights to it, then identify the transport company, pre-negotiate a contract with them. Then the, the assembly people pre-negotiate the assembly, the knitting, the cotton into the shirt. And then the final store, the retail outlet, Negotiate with them to have these 10,000 cotton shirts for sale in this quarter. You could pre-negotiate all of this supply chain dynamic and encode it. Code it into what you call a smart contract. If this happens, then this happens. So if this cotton gets bought, payment goes here, then there, then there, then there, all the way to there. And when you have that lined up, you could go out and just fundraise off the entire smart contract and just roll money into it. And so it's like an automated business. This is how Amazon works. You know, Amazon is a system. There's the warehouses and the packaging and the boxes and the robot and the move it here and the robots and it goes there and your, your phone and they're in the truck and it gets there, right? This sort of um, mechanistic systemic approach to movement of capital and goods, I think is really enabled by smart contracts. And all that does is lowers the price for things to happen and affords us the opportunity to unlock new markets. Markets that we need to bring, that we need to bring out uh, in order to, you know, either open up new opportunities or change the environment or, or you name it. And smart contracts also are just good for everyday use, everyday people to, have passive income and start to, you know, monetize their data and get paid for their data, and instead of a series of contracts where, okay, well, your your personal data can be you, you know, like right now, each one of us 
when you go online, if you know this, but if you go on, open your laptop, go online, and you know when the banner that pops up, there's a banner that pops up on your screen. Well, in the millisecond that that banner is popping up, there is a real-time bid happening for your attention. So you'll have company A and company B and company C all having an auction for you. Let's say, oh, here we go. I got a guy, he's 24 years old, lives in a major city. He's, uh, he goes out to restaurants. He eats these restaurants three times a week. Uh, he's traveled here, he's traveled there. He wears these clothes because they know everything about you. Because all your data has been, is being harvested for you on a minute-by-minute basis. And they take that data. And with that data, they form profiles of you and try to tailor advertising for you. So in the millisecond where that banner comes up, you are uh, being profiled and auctioned off and find the, the winner, some hotel chain wins it by with, okay, and go into the hotel chain for uh, 0.25 cents. And when you open the computer, all you see is bam, hotel chain banner, right? Now, what if all the data points they used to identify you and auction for you, you owned it and you could participate in that market? And that your personal smart contract was set up so that any auction that goes down, you get half of that 0.25 cents. And that becomes the, a really strong economic driver of, of personal wealth building and a personal passive income. Because at this point, you as a normal person with your phone and your movements about town and your computer activities, going out using your credit card, you could probably earn $200 a month off your data transactions. So imagine if you could do that. And imagine if you were, that money meant something to you. Imagine if you grouped up with friends. You and 10,000 of your friends or everyone from your college or everyone from your church could all pull your data together and then have bundled earnings that you could apply to invest, whatever, stock market, anything, buy houses, anything. And all that, you could just automate that and program that. That's your smart contract. There's a good, for, if you want to see this in action, look at the company called Brave. They're really doing it really well. And we're going to stop this episode right now. So stay tuned for next week when we give you part two. And don't forget to write a review on iTunes and share this episode with your network if you enjoyed it. All right. Thanks, everyone. And see you soon. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only and is licensed by the Investors Podcast Network. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.